Hey guys, welcome to episode 16 of Delta, the fixed income podcast brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. It's the 26th of February today. Uh, ITRAX Crossover has woken up from its sleep since Christmas and is finally starting to react to the moves that we've seen in the interest rates curve around the world. We're at 265 basis points today, but you know, still inside that relatively narrow range that we've been trading in since October of last year. In our last episode entitled A Credit Investor's Guide to Energy Transition, we focused on the qualities we look for in our credit portfolios when we look at energy companies and how we use stewardship and engagement to drive change in the industry. Let's have a little look back at what Nick Spooner, our climate change lead at EOS, uh, had to say about the considerable impact of the US election on energy sector transition. The momentum is is clearly there, and that, that's a really positive thing. And we only see that going sort of in one direction, catalyzed by the Biden administration in the US as well, catalyzed by the increasing social awareness of the climate crisis as well. So it's been really encouraging to be working with these companies. There's still a long way to go. A lot of these companies' business models are still misaligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement, even those that have set net zero targets. So whilst there's still a long way to go, and whilst these companies still have a lot of risk in their portfolio, it's really pleasing to see the progress that they have made. So I think that was a really super interesting episode. And for those of you who watch our publications as well, uh, we've published a, a 360 recently on sustainable fixed income, and we touch on some of the issues that we discussed in episode 15 in that issue as well. We certainly welcome the progress that companies have been making in navigating that energy transition. And we see uh, from changes that we've seen since the turn of the year as well, many of those companies starting to move even further than we discussed in episode 15. In this episode of the Delta, we'll aim to understand if that's even remotely possible, whether there is a bubble out there. It's a topic which has uh, raised its head once again and raised its head roughly every four or five years, but there's something different about this bubble. So we're gonna examine what bubbles look like, how likely they are to occur, what is the timeline of their occurrence, and what happens when bubbles occur and then burst. Joining me today, I have Caroline Murphy from our multi-asset team. I have Vincent Bengigi from our credit team, whose responsibilities include looking at vol markets and trading the credit options in our uh, funds. Laura Vaughan, who sits within the real world of lending to SMEs in the UK and Europe. And we're really going to try and tease out of Laura what she's seeing in lending practices and in the performance of the underlying companies. And uh, my friend and colleague, Stefan Michel, who's been through several of these cycles previously. So he was teasing me this morning, saying that all I'm going to do is turn to him, call him a granddad, and ask him what his experiences were of bubbles over the last uh, few cycles. So Caroline, let me turn to you first, and you can give us a macro-level intro, if you don't mind of what bubbles have looked like in the past and what you're looking at and thinking about whether there might be a bubble out there now. Sure. So at the moment, there's a multitude of things happening at once that are giving rise to that question, are, are we in a bubble now? Um, some of these would be valuations are super high, 
if you look at the CAPE ratio, it sits at range levels that we last saw in 1929 and 2000. You can look to US market capitalization, it's higher than GDP. This is an indicator that's been looked at that has tied out with past bubbles and um, an indicator that the bubble was going to burst. So while equities are looking expensive, they may actually pale in comparison to bonds. Bonds are proving much more expensive than equities at the moment, and that's driven by record low yields. We also know that property prices are rising. In the UK last year, property prices soared by 8.5%, and consider then that against GDP that actually shrank by 9.8%. There's market frenzy in many different areas. You just have to look at Bitcoin or other altcoins. Um, and there's even market frenzy in terms of issuances in the IPOs and the like big buzzword at the moment is SPACs. Um, then you have sentiment. It's quite high, which can be a good thing, but can also lead to market the market being overbought. And lastly, global debt today stands at $281 trillion versus $210 trillion back in 2013. So with all of that said, I think it's worth taking a step back and actually looking at the landscape. So as a starting point, everybody knows that there is saturation of liquidity in the market. In response to the COVID crisis, globally, central banks just pumped so much money into the system, significantly higher amounts than we saw back in 2008 and on a much more reflexive basis. And then you combine that with low interest rates, interest rates that we're expecting to stay as such for the foreseeable future. We just heard earlier in the week at Dovish Fed and there's so much evidence out there that suggests household disposable income is actually up. As I said, sentiment's quite high. So something like there's so much green shoots in people's perceptions off the back of vaccine news. And then you have to consider shifts from past bubbles or even previous years in the investment framework. So people have much easier access to internet trading. We've seen reduced fees to no fees. You've more knowledge sharing platforms. And something, this is a really simple observation, but buzzwords that we would have only expected in the financial circle or lexicon some years back, they're now on everybody's lips. People are talking about crypto, people are talking about SPACs. So all of those considerations are making for very fertile conditions for investors to actually steer into liquidity-driven investments that will yield returns. Investors are going to shun anemic returns. Bonds performance lagged equities since the crisis began. And you can see that even by the year to date performance in 2020. So smaller retail investors are now contributing much more to the daily volume in the stock market. You can really see a shift in investor profile and that does ring alarm bells for people, especially in the way it's manifesting. We've seen that the excess money growth to go back to the liquidity in the system, that's moved into equities. And like I said, cryptocurrency, it's just what everyone's talking about. Things that are easily accessible, so there's no mystery as to why the market is presenting us with a surge in these asset prices. And I think it points to the fact that we're potentially in the euphoric phase of the bubble, which should allow time yet for the bubble to burst. Thank you very much for that, Caroline. Really great introduction and really well balanced as well. I think that that's one of the things that we want to bring you today when we talk about this topic, which can be um, so, so emotive. There are so many people out there who are super bullish and see markets going much further. And so many people out here also pointing to some of the conditions that we see within markets. Central bank intervention probably being the one major concern and the, the volume of that central bank intervention leading to the, the volume of negative yielding assets out there is as a sign that things are 
uh, worse than they've ever been previously, but it's good to get a sort of balanced introduction. So Caroline, I'm gonna come back to you again. Maybe just for you, what are the two or three things that you're looking at most closely to signal that we'll move past that sort of euphoric phase and that things start to become a little more fragile and we should be concerned about a nearer term bursting of bubble or bubbles uh, out there? We monitor closely inflation. It's always been part of our multi-asset team investment framework. That would be something we're monitoring and quite concerned about. What I have just deemed as being conducive to good investment conditions, so interest rates being very low, the balance sheet being quite large, the longer that goes on, the more of a risk that actually poses. So that to us leaves us um, quite open to a welcome pickup in inflation and most importantly, unexpected inflation. So thank you for that, Caroline. Again, you know, I think the... As I look across the, the landscape, I find myself dependent upon which side of the bed I get out in the morning, feeling either you know, positive or negative. Neither of them feel acute. Neither of them feel, I don't feel acutely bullish nor acutely bearish. But let me just turn to you, Stefan, briefly to bring me some of those more bearish sentiments. We've brought you on here previously just to point out some of the things that might be worrisome about markets and worrisome about conditions. So just drop in here and give me some things that I can feel more comfortable about from a fixed income perspective and start to feel a bit more grumpy before I move on to Vincent and Laura. Uh, thanks, Jacko. It's always a, a pleasure to be brought in as uh, the, the depressing contribution to the conversation. Um, I, I think one of the key um, issues that could derail things is, uh, is, is the obvious elephant in the room, is that we all assume that we now have a clear uh, solution and path out of the COVID uh, uh, the COVID crisis uh, from a medical perspective. So we've we've often talked about uh, uh, you know monetary policy, fiscal policy, etc. But the conversation no longer is about uh, whether COVID will have uh, a, another wave, another mutation, another complication. We all seem to have adjusted to uh, the fact that the vaccines will work, and it's a question of if. Uh, rather than than when, uh, so I think that is uh, something that that's a tail risk uh, in people's minds, and and I don't think that's as perhaps as negligible as as we would like it to be. And I think that's just part of the human condition is that we we all, from a personal point of view, want that to be uh, to be the case. We want it to be over with, and so we we've, we've just assumed it uh, going forward. So I think that's. Uh, that's definitely uh, a cause for concern. And then the other one, which uh, we have uh, already hinted at, but there are many warning signs uh, out there. We all, I think, are um, very comfortable to to admit that valuations are lofty, things are expensive, uh, they will probably uh, get cheaper at some point. And we've all looked at this this bubble, this this balloon, uh, and assumed that. Uh, it can be deflated, you know, when you put a sellotape in and, and put a pin in, it's just a gentle uh, deflation rather than an, ex an explosion and a pop. And I think uh, in our minds, that's the way we will uh, deflate uh, this, this euphoria. 
uh, history suggests that 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 controlled uh, mechanism is very rare, and we tend to have more of a pop than a, than a gentle um, release of of the tension. Do you get the sense, Stefan, that the fact that we had such a tough crisis last year and that markets reacted so negatively to the COVID-19 pandemic has made people feel a little more comfortable that the market is on a more rational footing now? Do Do they feel like, okay, we've had a go at blowing this market up and therefore these these conditions the market must be reading these conditions more appropriately than they did in january or february last year well i, I think things have changed and, and and i you know I, I really feel like sometimes we we forget that before covid we already had issues and, and concerns about where we were heading from an economic perspective and perhaps this the, the covid uh, crisis uh, has has allowed us to to recalibrate and to look at growth from here from a from a lower base and and to also have uh, a lot of pent up demand from from a consumer perspective and, and, a, and a retail perspective, which uh, has been partially offset through uh, central bank and and government uh, policies in the interim. So not quite to the same effect. We've seen GDP growth falter, but. But there has been a replacement, and and yet that personal savings, uh, the, you know, the, this ex- explosion of demand that we're expecting, could be, uh, you know, quite a, quite a welcome growth. So, I, I do believe that um, uh, we we did get tested. Uh, I I think uh, rather than than believing that the fundamentals are justified because uh, we weathered this storm, I think. Uh, perhaps it's more a question, uh, uh, an issue that people now uh, realize that the helicopter uh, it really is omnipresent and with enormous rotor blades and can print money anywhere in any circumstance. And I think that's the comfort factor for me that people are looking at. Yeah, yeah, got it. And, and I think the other thing that, that sort of behaviorally I would observe about last year is that there's nothing we like more about a crisis with hindsight than being able to name it, being able to understand exactly what caused it. And I think with the crisis of 2020, it was all about the pandemic and we could associate it with the pandemic. And as you rightly say, we've probably forgotten the fact that things weren't that great going into the pandemic uh, because markets were telling you that things were nigh on perfect going into the pandemic, but central banks don't print that amount of money unless things are problematic. Okay, we're we're a fixed income podcast here, so let's get back to some fixed income stuff. And then I do want to um, sort of wrap up the show by coming back to Caroline and asking her to give us some perspectives on where fixed income sits in these sort of bubble uh, characteristics versus some of the other asset classes. But Vincent, let's come to you first. What are vol markets and credit markets telling us about where we are now and how much tail risk is out there um, and how much complacency is out there? Hi, Jaco. So I wanted to articulate this answer in two parts. The first part, we want to focus on what we can see on the synthetic market and how to interpret it. But then we need to link that with the credit fundamentals. So what do we see on the synthetic market right now? We can look at a few analytics for better understanding. First one is the underlying level on its own. And we have this sentiment. And it's more a sentiment than anything else, but we still have it that this rally cannot go on much longer because we reach extreme valuation. 
and I want to say once again, this is not new. And if I were to pick one example to illustrate that, I think it would be the CDX high yield, which is the synthetic basket of corporate credit representing US high yield market. So the CDS market is a spread product and usually trade as such, but CDX high yield has different convention it trades and it trades in price like any high yield bond. And a year ago, so just before the crisis in March, the index tested 110 cash price level, so 110 cents on the dollar, but it failed to break that level. And in fact, uh, if you go back further in time, CDX high yield never reached this level in the past 10 years, no matter the market conditions. And if we look now, there is a bit of this déjà vu with CDX high yield who reached a new intraday high. I think it was 109.6, and it was a couple of weeks ago, and still has been unable to go further. And since that, we're trading close to a point lower than that. And if we look at equities too, I think it's even more the case because SPX keeps on breaking all-time highs. But we can also look at the index fair value, and we see that the basis, which is briefly said the difference between the index value versus the sum of its parts, is positive in all indices, and particularly in crossover, crossover being the European equivalent of CDX high yield. And we can see that as a sign that markets are primarily worried about macro drivers of potential weakness, which can be still the virus, it can be rates, inflation, and this is as opposed to idiosyncratic sources of risk. But we can also look at investor positioning, and I think the key word here is stretch. It's stretch for all indices, and investors are longer than pre-crisis, especially in crossover and uh, in the US investment grade part. And finally, when we move to volatility, and let's be precise, here we're talking about implied volatility, so the expected move market. There are indicators for all asset classes, from equities to commodities and to fixed income, of course. And from this indicator derived price of our options, which is forward-looking perspective. What we see is that none of these have really moved back to previous territories. For equities, ever we look at VIX or V2X, which are for the US and for Europe, these indices are still trading at a high level versus a year ago. And VIX cannot breach 20, for instance, when it was trading almost half of this level a year ago. And on credit land, the implied volatility also hasn't totally recovered. While in the meantime, the realized volatility is reaching euros and keep on reaching euros. So as a consequence, we got volatility that trade at a high premium when we compare it to the actual moves recorded on the market. So if I'm just to wrap up what I just said, we got high valuation, long investor positioning, a premium for hedging and indices that trade more on macro news than idiosyncratic basis. So these are clear signals here. But then we want to look at the credit fundamentals to compare these, uh, these different signals. And what we have, Caroline previously uh, talked about the supportive economic backdrop with um, macro fundamentals which are held by monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, we got metrics like PMIs, which are all in positive territories and recovering. And we all expect on top of that uh, restriction uh, easing from coronavirus, meaning that we expect GDP expectation being stronger. And we also have default rates. If we look at the last wave on default rates, they have spiked, obviously. But this means that actually indices and market as a whole are cleaner now than they were a year ago. And we need to remember that these defaults, half of them were in the US and were in energy. So the index that we now have, the market that is now trading, is of better quality. And Fallen Angel have replaced zombie companies that should have defaulted a while ago. 
And I could go on like that. If we look at rating migration, which is comparing rising stars, companies that are currently high yield but about to be upgraded to the investment grade market versus the equivalent fallen angel, which are following the opposite path, we expect way more rising star right now than fallen angel. So we got an economic environment and market specifics that are on the constructive side. But on the corporate behavior, there's a lot of dispersion. It hasn't been all following the same path, obviously. Some sectors have done extremely well, and some of us have seen, at the very least, their business model being questioned. If you look at some cyclical industries and starting with auto, it goes without saying that performance has been under high pressure in the first half of 2020. And it's been followed by a sharp recovery in main market in the second half of the year. And the focus for these companies, now there's only one focus, is to keep leverage under control and bring it back to pre-crisis level. And this implies cost-cutting, no or very limited dividend, reduce capex, and whatever is left of capex is, to make, is, is, is being used on EV. We have the similar story with uh, non-food retail with a slower recovery path here because lockdown is still in place in many countries in the world, meaning that shops are closed. And the only channel for this industry is growth driven by e-commerce. But growth driven by e-commerce provides lower margin. And here, once again, companies focus on deleveraging via cost reduction, which can be achieved in many ways. Either they're closing stores, they're renegotiating their rent, there's a layout of some workforce, and so on and so on. While on the other side, some, some uh, industries have done very well. I'm thinking about food, obviously, which uh, is not facing the same challenges than other industries. And here, the cost-cutting effort, they're more to offset higher costs that are linked to COVID, like uh, delivery costs or having more employees to face the surge in demand. So here, leverage remains right under control. And actually, we're even seeing a bit of shareholder distribution, which uh, not all of the industries can afford to do. And looking at uh, the Q4 earnings, for instance, in the US, we have confirmation of those trends. Some industries uh, have seen a record in EBITDA growth. And I'm thinking in particular in the IG land, metals and mining, which are being driven by uh, uh, a rise in commodities, uh, but also food and pharma, this kind of industry. While on the other end, everything that is cyclical and COVID related, leisure, airlines, uh, gambling, all these companies, of course, have, uh, uh, are struggling. So to wrap up very briefly, to, to, me, to me, it's a tough one to call because it's not all doom and gloom. We have a stretch valuation and heavy positioning and sign of leveraging that is growing and growing. But on the other side, we have this macro environment that is recovering and we have a cleaner credit space and companies that are focusing on repairing their balance sheet before thinking about doing something else. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you, Vincent. Really, really good. I love the commentary that you gave us about what Volland is telling us about how confident people are with their positioning. So if I could just summarize, there's very heavy positioning out there, but people are nervous that they might be wrong with that positioning. And you know, touching on a sector that, that you didn't mention, we've had announcements from European banks and US banks already for you know what they've been doing over the last quarter and it doesn't look like they are out there lending aggressively in the way that they've done uh, previously certainly volume of high yield bonds being placed is is through the roof um, but that's not them lending and that brings me to the last of our speakers today 
um, Laura. And Laura is in that space lending to SMEs around Europe and is competing against others to do that. So, you know, we'll get a sense for how aggressive others are. But maybe if you don't mind, Laura, talk to us a little about how the underlying companies are doing right now and then move on from how they're doing to how aggressive lending practices are. Because, you know, when we talk about bubbles, people often walk over to our fixed income desks when they talk about bubbles because we're seen as the centre of bubbles bursting. In fact, cycles are often called credit cycles because we're the ones who bring things down. Of everybody on the call today, you're probably closest to understanding um, what's happening out there in terms of corporate bankruptcies and, and, and corporate struggling. Give us your input, please. Sure. Thanks, Jacko. So I think in, in most of the detail, what I can speak to is the companies that obviously we're seeing in our portfolio. Um, our proposition takes a relatively conservative view, I would say, versus other market participants. So what we're seeing there is companies that have had to maybe adjust their model slightly because of lockdowns. Um, liquidity has stayed relatively robust. Um, they have strong fundamentals and they're, they're ready for the economies to open up again. We haven't really seen um, covenant waivers, covenant resets, any of those types of things. And I think the sectors where most people would feel comfortable putting their money right now are in the the healthcare, um, software and financial services. Something that we're seeing in the market, and I mean, I'm surprised, is we're seeing leverage of five and a half to six times going on those deals, um, pricing at about six to 650. I mean, to me, that just seems um, pretty outrageous at the moment, but I'll talk in a minute as to what is driving the competition in this market, which I think is slightly different than some of the other asset classes out there. Um, private debt has an additional factor, but I'll come on to that shortly. I think in, in terms of some um, of the other sectors, I mean, no surprise, the the retail, the travel and leisure, casual dining sectors, the ones that are filling the Sunday papers um, with the restructurings and the, the debt holders ending up taking the keys. What's different this time around, I mean, and you have to remember as well that direct lenders haven't exactly gone through um, a market crash in Europe. Direct lenders are a product of the financial crisis. They didn't really exist before 08. And what's different is direct lenders survive on their track record and their their management fees and the size of the funds that they can raise. They're not going to be as quick to exit out of deals and take impairments or take massive losses because that's further going to impair their ability to fundraise on the next fund. So increasingly, we're seeing uh, direct lenders taking the keys in the hope that they can restructure, they can reorganize the business and hopefully realize some upside down the line. The one problem I would say is and where we're not certain and nobody is certain unless you're in those specific funds is because the market is opaque and you don't have to report on it. There are a couple of options open to direct lenders and there's three mainly. So let's say one of your borrowers approaches you and says, Covenants coming up, we're going to struggle to meet them in the next nine to 12 months because of earnings are massively compressed because of lockdowns or for whatever reason. The direct lender has three options. First one is they can trigger an event of default and take the keys. The issues with that is most direct lending teams are quite streamlined versus, say, a bank. There is no separate restructuring department. 
Um, there may not be a breadth of knowledge in these teams of how to do restructurings. If someone only entered the market in 0809, they may not have ever dealt with a restructuring before. So teams are not going to want to do that because one restructuring possibly manageable, two to three, your whole team is distracted. You're not going to be able to continue to deploy capital because everyone's trying to figure out these problem assets and trying to, to shore up track record returns. The other option that you can do is you can reset the covenants, and that's probably the most sensible approach. The company has a new outlook on how they're going to perform financially. So you, you forecast that out and you apply covenant levels that would still have some teeth. It gives the company a bit of headroom to kind of take their eye off the covenant and focus on managing the business through this difficult period. But it still allows you that if the company was to underperform on what they were projecting, you still have the ability to engage with management and start having meaningful discussions on how we're going to move the business forward, whether it's restructure or reorganize. But the third option, and the one that I think is happening more and more, albeit we can't exactly be certain because um, no one has to report on it, you waive the covenants. And what that means is you remove the test completely. So the upside to a direct lender is they get to turn around to their investors and say, no, we haven't had any covenant resets. We haven't had any restructurings, no impairments, portfolios looking great. The downside is they've just removed their best chance of engaging with the company if it underperforms. They have weakened their protections completely. So they've put themselves in a far worse position at the expense of, of how they market the fund. And I think why we're seeing a lot more of those um, in recent years is a factor of the, the drivers behind what is increasingly um, adding to the competitive nature of our market. So I pulled up some stats that I found. So in the last four years, direct lenders raised $207 billion to deploy. And about 50% of that hasn't been invested yet. So let's call that $100 billion that needs to be invested. And bear in mind, an investment period is probably three, three to four years. So it's a lot of money that has to be put to work. There is no option to phone up investors and say, listen, guys, market conditions are overheated. Don't really like the direction things are going. Want to take my foot off the pedal and just sit tight. It doesn't work like that. There is a huge pressure to deploy. On top of that, private equity has 300 billion of dry powder to invest in. All of that is feeding into this frenzy of um, what the guys were talking about in terms of EV multiples. And I had a look at some numbers. So between 07 and 17, EV multiples never really budged from around 10 times. 18 and 19, they started tracking upwards. 2020, they were at 12.6 times. That's an unforeseen multiple. Um, we've never been there. And of course, P, you're going to start want to push down risk. I would say in normal times, people would push back and say, absolutely not. We can see it. the market's hot. Why would we be putting ourselves at additional risk? The issue is by throwing COVID into the mix, you completely diminish the amount of quality assets that are out there. So if you don't have a strong origination platform, you are desperate to put your money to work. So in order to compete on the best assets, people are willing to, to pare back their baseline of what they're willing to accept. So some things we're seeing, um, and it's primarily in the EBITDA ad backs. So as you probably know, um, when you're structuring a deal, you're looking at the, the forecast cash flows, what level of debt can a company support? And it all kind of hangs on the, the last 12 months performance. So your, um, your actual EBITDA. What's happened in recent years um, exceptionals get added on. 
I mean, there's some standard ones. We acquired a business six months ago. We want to take into consideration a full year of the benefit, annualize um, the synergies. No problem. You can get comfortable with that. However, what we're starting to see, you obviously have the COVID adjustment. So companies saying, oh, we made 20 million EBITDA this year. Um, the year before we made 30. Um, so if COVID hadn't been there, we probably would have made 35. So people are accepting. Even though the number was 20, people are going to structure the debt of 35 million. So they're allowing this huge inflation. And that's all very well and good. But is a post-COVID world going to look like a pre-COVID world? And to Stefan's point, we were already had issues going into COVID. Is that the right number to structure off? And some other um, items that get thrown into that structuring number are synergies, which is always a really difficult pill to swallow. Um, management can say to you, in the next 12 to 18 months, um, we're going to uh, right size uh, the back office. We're going to integrate a number of initiatives. We're going to streamline our manufacturing process. And we think we're going to generate synergies of about 15 million. They can just add those onto the structuring EBITDA and there is no repercussions if they're not met. There is no testing mechanism if they're going to get there. But on day one, the debt number is structured off that inflated EBITDA. So that's a reason why a lot of companies may appear to be over levered. If we do have some sort of crash, deflation, slow air slowly erupting out of this bubble, these companies are going to be in trouble, which means the debt funds that have lent to them are going to be in trouble because they're not going to have the breadth of expertise to be able to manage a number of restructurings all at one go. So it's going to be quite interesting to see if direct lenders have kicked the can down the road, what is going to happen in two to three years time. That was awesome, Laura. Thank you very much for that. Um, you know, I think the idea of air slowly seeping out of the bubbles is, is something that resonate, resonates with me and, and the challenge that lenders might face if that starts to occur. I would, though, posit that maybe in 2020, there was a little bit of air let out of this bubble. And, you know, going back to some of the things that uh, Vincent alluded to, there have been little bits of air that have been let out of the bubble through the crisis. Um, you know, UK retail, for example, I know it's a sector that you um, don't go anywhere near, but UK retail high street has been, you know, letting air out of the bubble uh, for the last several years. So I, I think that might be both a, a concern and also a mild positive that we have started to see some air come out of bubbles in, in certain parts of markets. Maybe coming to you now, Stefan, and, and drawing on your experience of, you know, this versus previous crises, what what looks similar? What looks different? What's your feeling for, you know, where you think um, things are starting to look at extreme levels? Um, what, what's your spidey sense telling you about where we are here? Well, I think there's a, there's quite a few things at play. And, and, and I guess the, uh, the good news is that there, there are also reasons why we shouldn't be uh, just concerned. There are also some reasons to be, to be comforted. Um, so, so the first thing I wanted to highlight, uh, and, and since you uh, uh, brought up the fact that I have seen a few of these before, uh, and, and I, for avoidance of that, I'm not a grandfather, but uh, that, that's another point. Um, the, the, um, uh, the last crisis that we could talk about, so in, in uh, 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 2000 and, uh, 
seven, we were really, uh, you know, you and I remember that fondly for being uh, in the middle of it, being the, the catalyst almost for, for that crisis. But if you think about the people involved in that, um, if, if I tell you that the number one song at that time was by Leona Lewis, I, I doubt many people in the market at, at this point would, would know uh, much about Leona Lewis. If we go back to the dot-com crisis, we're talking about Atomic Kitten. Uh, and back in the financial uh, Asian financial crisis, we're talking about when Puff Daddy was Puff Daddy. So these these are uh, all highlighting that the, the current people involved in the market probably have not experienced uh, such volatility, such such pain. And when they did in COVID, the the rescue came, uh, and and they haven't felt the full impact of that. They felt the market market impact. And so I think for me. That that is uh, a concern about how uh, people may react to to realized uh, losses, to a genuine high scale defaults uh, across the board. Um, the the other thing I I, I was uh, going to highlight is that there are similarities, and and if you go back to uh, two thousand and one, uh, the way I, I like to look at, at warning signs, one of them is big scale fraud. Uh, so you go back to one, you had um, you know WorldCom and Enron. Uh, around the time uh, of of the credit uh, crunch, we had obviously Madoff, uh, and 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 we've had recent uh, big highlights uh, on fraud. So that's that's all another warning sign that the conditions uh, are are there for uh, potentially calling this uh, a bubble. And we've also seen, and and people always tell you what when your when your cab driver is talking to you about the financial markets that uh, everything is ripe, and with all the the um, uh, on online forum speculation recently, cryptocurrency speculation, uh, SPAC speculation, you can, you can see that there's an element of that retail investor desire uh, and, and frankly, fear of missing out. And, and I remember uh, vividly uh, as, a, as a, a fundamental analyst back during the dot-com thinking that things had gotten absolutely insane in terms of valuations of people digging up the ground and putting fiber in. Uh, and then eventually capitulating because all my friends were making a fortune and I was the last person in and that was a very valuable lesson uh, for me. I was, you know, I was one of the last buyers of some telecom stock at the very wrong price. Uh, and uh, I've carried that lesson for, for the last couple of decades. Uh, so, so I think that fear of missing out uh, is it brings out tourists uh, and they're very fickle. So they leave as quickly as they arrive. So it creates more volatility. So all of those things are concerns, but for me, the, the good news is the disintermediation of uh, of, of the banks, uh, the way that private money has been raised, it, the, the risk has been distributed, uh, but also it's gone into uh, for 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 a good part into vehicles which uh, have a long uh, maturity attached to them, and and so if there is any pain, you know, we we do know that sometimes liquidity. Uh, the disappearance of liquidity, liquidity creates defaults that didn't have to occur for fundamental reasons. Uh, and, and I think that that risk has been spread into longer vehicles, which may create observational mark-to-market pain, but may not actually lead to defaults. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that's an important part of, of how the bubble may deflate in a less violent manner than, than in the past. That, that's great. Thank you very much for that, Stefan. I'm just going to come back with one last question for you. Um, on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, if we look back over 
you know, your career, my career, where are we in terms of how scarily over-exuberant people are in the most irrationally exuberant parts of markets? You know, you talked about the telco era. We, you know, saw, you know, financial markets in particular getting very, very stretched with leverage being inserted through you know every synthetic means possible you you asked me whether you could mention cpbos which was one of the financial instruments that was launched just before the last crisis if minus 10 is like you there is no sign anywhere and plus 10 is it's absolute madness out there where are we in your sense um i, w- I would say that, that there are pockets that are at plus 10 in terms of uh, certain assets that have have just gotten way ahead of themselves. But I think on, on average, and assuming that they don't create contagion if they were to be more rationally valued, I, I think we're, we're probably at a, a, a four or five. Uh, I think there's plenty of reasons to explain why this may continue at the current levels without uh, being wrong, uh, particularly in, in credit. The defaults aren't coming through. If you look at you know, the distress ratio or the rolling 12-month defaults uh, or even the, the triple C rated collateral in, in, in LEV loan space, it's, it, it doesn't need to be frightening, but you do need to get paid for that. So I wouldn't want to see much more tightening from here, but I don't feel like we need to have a big gap out in order to justify being involved in the market. Yeah, I guess that's the last big question that I had in my mind, and we probably can't cover it off today in terms of contagion. But it does feel to me like, you know, one or two of these areas where you're saying you might be a plus 10 are so dominant on the on the thoughts and deeds of markets these days, you know, so dominant in terms of their contribution to the larger indices, particularly US equity indices that I'm, I'm finding it hard to imagine a situation where those kind of um, irrational, overly exuberant valuations don't have some kind of contagion effect, but they're clearly not um, very linked, you know, many of those areas not very linked to credit, which is one of the things that feels a little uh, different about this time round, that it doesn't feel like credit is as exposed to those really, really bubbly areas. And, and maybe that's me getting old and complacent and, and feeling like things uh, might be different this time, which, of course, they never are. Sorry, what, just one thing I wanted to highlight. You know, back in 05, 06, when we were squeezing spreads tighter in credit, uh, there was an alternative. You could buy 10-year govies and make 4 or 5%. Um, we don't have that alternative now, which kind of helps justify why things should be more constructive for credit, even at these tight levels compared to that that particular period. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, Caroline, if I can come to you, we've, we sort of started the, the episode talking more macro, and then we dived a little deeper into the, the thoughts and, and actions of, of credit market participants and broader fixed income market participants. As you look across all of the asset classes, equities, real assets, credit, which one of those is making you feel most nervous, if any? Uh, is there any that stand out for you as you know the, the areas that you'd be watching most closely for those, those kind of bubbles inflating? 
I'd have to support what Stefan has said there on um, his views on equity. I think the retail angle is very concerning. Um, if It also ties in with his point on leverage. If, if you consider individual name call option volumes, these have risen. They're pointing again to an increase in retail investors. It's highly unlikely that a trading desk is just going to buy one single name call option. So retail investors are doing this for speculative reasons, not for hedging reasons, and they're leaving themselves quite open on a leverage basis. Um, we were just looking at the other day, the FINRA margin debt levels. It's just shy of 800 million at the moment. Whereas if you look back in March, 2020, it was 500 million. And I think the highest it's ever gone is between 650 and $600 million. So again, investors have much more margin than they did at the slump. Um, this is just anecdotal, but Reddit, as you know, it's, it's a community where people discuss things and they have a concept of subreddits. So it's just topics um, on Reddit that are discussed. And if you actually look at that, investment has become one of the highest um, ranking topics in recent years. I think, again, that just points back to retail investors. And I know Stefan has also mentioned FOMO. There's such evidence that that's out there. Going back to my point where I said a concern for me would be unexpected inflation, that would also be why I'm concerned of the equity space, because that could materialise in two ways. There's going to be a negative impact on equity returns as the discount rate for equity returns rises. And that's really going to be felt more by growth stocks than value stocks, because growth stocks have their cash flows further out in the future. And we know that growth stocks are making up huge levels of this overvaluation at the moment. And then the other aspect where it will impact equities is that it's going to result in lower earnings forecasts. So there'll be greater market uncertainty there. So I would definitely say equities would be causing the most anxiety in me at the moment. Great. Thank you very much for that, Caroline. And, and in an attempt to sort of summarise what we've been discussing here, and then we'll turn to all options on the table. Um, I mean, it feels like there's a, a meme-driven valuation explosion out there, which makes people very, very nervous. Valuations look toppy uh, in a number of areas. And looking at credit, I think, you know, the multiples that we're seeing in terms of lending practices in that space that Laura was alluding to in SMEs, but also that 110 threshold for CDX high yield makes people very nervous, makes us very nervous. The differential between the performance of growth and value is clearly another sign that you know things are starting to get a little bit overheated and irrationally exuberant. But on the positive side and the things that you know maybe mitigate the risk that the bubble is imminently about to burst, uh, maybe first is that we have seen some air let out of the bubble in 2020, and we continue to see that as defaults continue to trickle through and lending practices remain on a relatively cautious footing in some areas of markets. Second, of course, is the reference that Vincent made to the fact that implied volatility is staying relatively high and vol skew is high, which is pointing to the fact that while people have to be invested, they are buying house insurance when they can. Third, of course, is that there is a lot of dry powder still out there. And you know, Laura gave us some stats on the amount of money that's been raised to invest into direct lending and how much of that 
uh, of that has actually been deployed. The fourth positive is that risk is more evenly distributed amongst financial market practitioners and you know, new investors into the space. Um, and Stefan made reference to that. You know, we aren't any longer in a situation where banks alone appear to be taking the vast majority of the risk. There are new instrument types and new vehicles by which people can invest in markets and take some of that risk away from those um, areas of, of huge concentration that we saw before the financial crisis. And last but by no means least, and it's surprising that we haven't spent more time talking about it today, central banks. Central banks have been on the sidelines pumping everything that they can into markets and into economies to try and stimulate growth. But they're also there on the sideline as a safety net. And they're the ones who are going to help keep financial markets propped up when they start to see uh, volatility rising. And we've heard this week um, signals from the, both the ECB and members of the, the Fed board saying that they don't see interest rates going up anytime soon and that they're pretty much signaling that actually they feel like they might have to do more to keep markets afloat. So one section of the uh, Delta podcast that we always come back to is all options on the table. And we did receive several questions about bubbles. Are we in bubbly kind of territory? And I tried to synthesize that down into one question that can ask all of our guests. So the question I am going to pose to each of you is, if and when the bubble bursts, where should you be? And let's keep our answers as short as we can. And um, maybe I'll start with you, Stefan. Uh, if and when the bubble bursts, where should financial market practitioners be? Uh, what should they be invested in? And you can't just say short. <laughs> uh, well, if they burst for inflationary reason, you want to be protected from that. Uh, so, so floating uh, is, is appealing. Uh, if they burst for mark-to-market uh, -market equity reasons, then obviously being in corporate credit, uh, and it's not due to fundamental reasons and being in corporate credit, it's not a bad place. So uh, obviously I'm biased, but securitized products uh, offer you floating rate corporate exposure if you're in CLOs, for example. So um, I think that's a good place to be. And you can be at a AAA level or, or, or thereabouts and have enormous amount of subordination to protect you from fundamental issues. Sure. I mean, I think if and when it bursts, because I'm close to certain we will see some sort of deflation in the medium term, I think the direct lending market will still offer attractive proposition for investors for a couple of reasons. One, risk-adjusted returns, assuming you are invested in the right fund with the right strategy. Um, it's floating rate. If interest rates go up, you're going to benefit from the upside. It's low correlation to other asset classes. So you're getting a nice counterweight, whether you're in riskier assets or in your in more volatile asset classes. So I think finding the right direct lending strategy that has a conservative approach going into the crash and out, because you want to make sure that that team is not distracted by restructurings. They are fully focused on putting your money to work. They have a strong origination capability, so they're able to put it in the right investments. So I think the direct lending market still, but just alter your approach um, if you're in the riskier side of things right now. Vincent, if I can come to you next with your answer. So for me, it would be a mixture of several things. First part would be, of course, to add more hedges to make sure that we can withstand the market going lower and lower. 
but then also rotating a portion of portfolio, obviously in more defensive product uh, asset classes and less cyclical, most importantly, something less cyclical and being less sensitive to rights product. Great. Thank you for that, Vincent. And coming to you last, Caroline, and then I'll give my two pennies. I would be coming at it from the angle that the bubble is going to burst because of unexpected inflation. And as a result, I'd be proposing to invest in inflation hedged assets such as commodities, inflation linked bonds and property REITs. Commodities mm-hmm. are quite an interesting one because if you take, for example, agris, you drill further down to green as the price of green rises, so too is the product um, that it's used for going to rise. So you're protected somewhat there. Then in terms of inflation linked bonds, they're indexed to inflation. So you're not going to experience inflation related erosion. And then in terms of REITs, rising property market, property prices and retail income will rise in line with inflation. And that's how the multi-asset team have always considered it with an inflation hedge view. Great. Thank you for that, Caroline. And, and my uh, answer will be... <laughs> a slightly cowardly answer. I think a diverse portfolio, and i never, ever said this previously, I think a diverse portfolio is a relatively good way to be defended against this because I think the point that was made earlier about contagion may be the case this time around. Most often when bubbles burst, correlation heads towards one pretty rapidly and takes everything down with it. But I think there might be a few pockets that do okay this time around. And I think they might do okay because central banks might be able to intervene and save them. But I do think there is value in diversity this time around in, in ways that there haven't been through some of the previous crises, trying to tease out something that might be different about the way in which this bubble bursts. So this was episode 16 of Delta, our fixed income podcast. Today, we discussed how bubbles might burst, whether there's a bubble out there, what the similarities are between previous bubble type characteristics and where we find ourselves today. We delved a little bit deeper into what credit markets are telling us about whether bubbles are out there, looked at what vol markets and synthetic markets are telling us about investor positioning. And then we spoke to Laura a little more about what she was doing in the direct lending space and how that was giving us signals as to how aggressive people's lending practices might be and how vulnerable companies might be to a pullback. Stefan and Caroline gave us a broader perspective on markets and on our experience of bubbles as they've burst previously. For me, the three key takeaways from today are that it's actually quite tough to call that we're right at the point where a bubble might burst. As much as meme-driven price action makes us nervous and makes us uh, financial market practitioners nervous about Uh, retail investors coming and propping up these markets, it probably feels like we might go on a little bit longer before this bubble bursts. Second big takeaway from me is that actually um, there is a possibility that credit might be a little different from some of the other asset classes. We might not be at the center of this bubble this time around. And the third, and um, it's not something that we've spent a lot of time talking about the third really big takeaway whenever anyone is discussing bubbles right now is that central banks don't want anything to go wrong and will do everything that they can to keep this party going. Thanks to Caroline, to Vincent, to Stefan and Laura for joining us today. Thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. And I look forward to sharing perspectives with you from our team next time. Stay well. See you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.